From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Wednesday, February 8th. Moab is one of the most popular destinations for highlining. The sport is basically tightrope walking for climbers. Highliners place rope between two high points and then walk across it. As KZMU's Emily Arnson reports, the first highlining guiding business in the United States will open here in Moab this March. Faith Dickey is doing a trial run for her new guiding business, Elevate Outdoors. She wants to get some coaching practice in, so she's invited some friends out to a popular highlining spot in Mineral Canyon to teach them the basics. A 65-foot line is stretched out across two ends of the rim and bolted into the slick rock. Dickey is sitting at the edge of the canyon, coaxing her friend onto the line. Her friend is practicing how to fall. He's just intentionally stepped off the line and is now dangling from his harness about 400 feet off the ground. Dickey is teaching him how to get back up. She's testing out some techniques that she hopes will make highlining more accessible to newbies. She's set up a kind of leash system above the highline. Beginners can hold onto the top rope above them to keep their balance as they walk across. So it's essentially top rope highlining, but it's really cool because it gives people the opportunity to stand out in the middle of space, hundreds of feet off the ground on a highline, who maybe didn't have a way to do that before. Quincy Mazur is stepping out on a high line for the first time. You're doing good, Quincy. Strong leg. <laughs> you got this, Quincy. You're stuck. You got You're it. Not Take stuck. a step. Take a step. How was it out there? Um, <laughs> terrifying. You killed it. Really scary. I'm crying right now. <laughs> My heartbeat is literally racing. I should look. Let's see if it went up. Oh, yeah, it went up the spike to 131. <laughs> you a climber? I'm not a climber. I like to be on the ground <laughs> firmly. So that was outside my comfort zone. But then Faith invited you out, and you were like, sure, try anything once? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I've always wanted to, and now I know it. I don't think it's for me, but I feel like it was really good for me to just come out here and do it. It's good to be scared and to do things anyways. Even when you're scared, you got to do them. It was super cool to see her, like, push through this line. And I could tell she was getting gripped where your body just isn't responding to you. You're, like, telling it to do something and it won't move. And it's just, I'm, like, so proud of her for pushing through that. I did. I had that moment where I was like, I can't take another step, but I didn't want to fall. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay, I guess I'll just keep going. Yeah. Dickie says she loves watching people walk their first highline. It totally brings me back to my first experience. My body just totally resisted what was happening, and I just fell and fell and fell. And it was wild to have that experience of, like, my brain is telling my body to do a thing, and my body is not doing it. How do you anticipate coaching new highliners through those mental blocks? I like to use the concept of meditation as a way to kind of translate the experience to people. Um, Breathing was a huge component to be able to calm your body down, even while there's like a survival primal instinct happening in your mind of like, get away from the cliff edge, get away from the void. Yeah. And what are some of the things you hope to teach people who have never experienced this or who have never encountered fear or like the possibility of death in such a stark way? 
I hope I can really impart on people that if you never take risks, you don't know what you're capable of. It's really powerful to push yourself out of your comfort zone and go beyond what you think you can do. For KZMU and Moab, I'm Emily Ernson. Utah lawmakers have clarified what therapists can do under the state's conversion therapy ban. As Sage Miller with our partners at KUER reports, the bill garnered support from Equality Utah and the Utah Eagle Forum, which are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Conversion therapy is the practice of changing a person's gender identity or sexual orientation, but a bill introduced this session weakened the current definition. Marina Lowe is the policy director with Equality Utah. She says that was concerning. In its original form, only banned physical forms of conversion therapy, and so therefore logically that meant that it legalized verbal or talk conversion therapy, which is essentially all that is being practiced anymore. A change to the bill now stipulates that therapists are allowed to investigate a patient's struggles with gender and sexual identity. And by doing so, Republican Representative Brady Brammer said it would not be considered conversion therapy. Now, if the conversation is the therapist is coming in and saying, it's time for you to change those feelings. It's time for you to change your sexual orientation. And I've got a formula for you to get there. That's not appropriate. The Utah Eagle Forum, a conservative organization, said the bill guarantees LGBTQ youth aren't offered only therapy that affirms their identity. The bill passed unanimously out of committee and is headed to the House. Sage Miller, KUER News. That report is from our partners at KUER in Salt Lake City. Black travelers in the United States during and even after Jim Crow had a lot to be concerned about while on the road. To keep safe and avoid discrimination, many Black travelers used a guidebook to tell them what places could offer them lodging and services. Now Colorado's Historic Division plans a statewide survey of these locations, also known as Green Book Sites. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF's Laura Pomisano speaks with Patrick Eidman and Poppy Gullett from History Colorado. Describe how these travel guides were used by Black travelers. I think of them kind of the same way that people might use Twitter or Yelp now. They were a great way to understand where you were going if you'd never been there before. So the guides would go out, someone would do the traveling, wander around these places, and find places that were safe for them. And then report it back to other people, whether that was back east, in the south, or just other parts of the west. So people would read these guides, and they could be something like the the classic Victor Green travel guide, the, the Green Book, what we think of. Or they could be something more like the vacation section in Ebony Magazine. And people would use these to plan their travel, to find safe places to stay. Even if this wasn't their final destination, Colorado was a thoroughfare from a lot of other places further west. So they'd use them to plan where they could go, organize the trip, and break it into safe chunks. What made History Colorado want to explore these sites in the first place? A couple of reasons. First is actually the second phase of a project, the first phase, which was undertaken by the Colorado Historical Foundation using a state historical fund grant was just to do the initial research. So to go through the travel guides, put together a list. And then of those, of course, many have been lost either to demolition and development. So that, you know, that number today, what still exists is much smaller. So anyhow, this step of the project 
aside from just being the logical next phase, we just think that it's really important to do these work. Because we look nationally at sites associated, Green Book sites, Black Travel Network throughout the United States. There's been some work done by an author and researcher named Candace Taylor. And she estimates that 70 to 80 percent of these sites have been lost and that only just a few, two or three percent, are still in operation. So we think it's really timely, it's really important, and it certainly fits in with the other work that we are doing at History Colorado really to help, you know, citizens understand, you know, our broader history, these stories that haven't either been well researched or well understood. How will the survey work? So the first phase of the survey it is already done. So we have what Patrick had talked about, which is roughly 280 sites we're aware of. A lot of them are already sort of been demolished or changed dramatically. So what we plan to do is we'll hire a consultant, typically an expert in architectural history. And we also want to do public outreach. So we want to involve people in these communities, specifically black communities around the state. So that'll be our sort of two-pronged approach is facilitating, you know, these conversations with people to talk about where their grandparents or parents might have stayed while they were traveling or places they knew of that were Black-owned and friendly to travelers in their own community. So we'll be hosting some of those, we'll be on the road talking to people, and then we'll also be basically taking a historical survey, which is functionally taking photos and a deep dive into the research of these places. And we'll collect that data, we'll put it all in one place in a nice report together, and then from that pool, we'll talk with owners and see who amongst those property owners is interested in listing in the National Register. What are some of the well-known Green Book sites that still exist today? One of the best known is the Winx Lodge in Gilpin County. This was a resort for Black travelers who might have been traveling through the area. It was in the Lincoln Hill development, which was a lot of Black-owned cabins. So think of this as sort of a destination. It was a summer lodge. We know people like Zora Neale Hurston and Duke Elliott stayed there. And it would have been a, a great place for Black travelers to enjoy nature and feel safe with their families up in the hills. It's currently being considered for a National Historic Landmark designation. So think of that as a step up from the National Register. And another really good one might be the Handy Chapel in Grand Junction. Uh, yeah, Handy Chapel actually is a really interesting story. Listed down the National Register. It's historically and still a church that serves a spiritual home for a black congregation. Handy Chapel is an example of a property that wasn't listed in the Green Book or these other travel guides, but still is an important part of, again, this safety-minded sort of black travel network. So the, the church would make their chapel house available to black travelers that couldn't find accommodation in Grand Junction. So as part of this project, you know, certainly we're going to research deeper into the sites identified in the first phase, but as Poppy mentioned, when we are working on community outreach and engagement, we're hoping to learn more stories like Candy Chapel of places that, again, were during the time of segregation, an important area of safety for Black travel, but that weren't formally listed. Thank you for your time, Poppy and Patrick. Thank you so much, Laura. Great speaking with you. Thank you. That was Patrick Eidman and Poppy Golett with History Colorado. I'm Laura Palmisano. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, February 8th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.